Welcome, Onion Heads, to a second pod in our series addressing healthy spirituality. I return after a lengthy recovery from spinal surgery in October and a tough bout with COVID in January, so I am glad to be back. In the interim, we transitioned from fall to winter with a time change thrown in for good measure. And as I write, we experienced yet another time change while heading into spring. Heraclitus reminds us that the only constant is change. We are embedded in creation where, if we watch and see, creation informs us about processes within and without that carry us along the greater unfolding. In the fall, the teeming growth surrounding us begins to fade, too late to redeem all those pocket-sized green tomatoes on the vines. Temperature drops, we witness the dying of all the colors and textures that then hide underground. Nature slumbers as the dead of winter moves in. A dying silently envelops us as we await new life in the spring. This is the cycle revealed in nature and in the life of Jesus. God in the flesh both experiences and reveals the pattern of growth, suffering, dying, death, and new life. So it is again and again in our lives if we watch and see. Two foundational perspectives inform a healthy spiritual life. On the one hand, everything is broken. As Leonard Cohen sings, there is a crack in everything. This is a creative way to approach the notion of sin. And we might also consider the Buddhist notion of ignorance, which could keep us from recognizing this truth. If we understand the inherent brokenness of all, then we might be surprised that anything works at all. There is a crack in everything, including our individual lives. Whenever I hear someone say, I'm not perfect, I know this person has little or no self-knowledge of his or her peculiar and particular brokenness. It's a false and misleading humility. We may come out of the womb cute and cuddly, and yet already there is our brokenness just waiting to be revealed. We come out of the womb looking for relational connection, yet broken and wounding relationships await us. Parents fail us. What a surprise. Schools fail to educate. What a surprise. Police protect and serve and also brutalize and kill. What a surprise. Politicians only lie when they open their mouths. What a surprise. Pastors and congregations invest vast energy and resources in preserving the institution rather than welcoming the stranger, developing spiritually mature individuals, and caring for the poor. What a surprise. Spiritually healthy people make the daily decision to keep their eyes open, a mature way of thinking about faith. Whatever we refuse to face eventually makes us ill. And then the second practice, being present 
even as we experience the crack in everything. This is no easy task. Being present to the moment is vastly more difficult than it sounds. And I wonder if a part of this difficulty is because we will be most fully present in our final moment, so that being present perhaps sets off too much death anxiety. Being spiritually present asks us to develop compassion in this moment. More often, we are hooked on judgment, and judgment so often comes from the lack of experience of the other. Seems like contemporary conservative Christianity has developed judgment into an art form. Liberals, Democrats, gays, lesbians, women who have abortions, trans folk, drinkers, druggies, the list seems endless. All the while, these self-righteous Christians puff themselves up. But the measure by which you judge is the measure by which you will be judged. Why do you see the splinter in your neighbor's eye and ignore the log in your own eye? How easy it is to judge from a non-relational distance rather than empathically thinking and feeling our way into another's life. Much easier to judge than to think. And it appears that greater numbers of people seem unable to self-reflect, unable to think critically vulnerable to the worst perspectives around us. One of the truths from 25 years of practicing psychotherapy is that there is so often a sad logic to a person's questionable choices. In context, though, the choices make sense. There is almost always a traumatic history behind the decisions and actions that bring continued suffering. Every person, a great mystery with a unique life narrative, a distinctive history that we only enter with empathic immersion, opening our hearts and minds to the beauty and trauma of that particular life. So it is that the root meaning of compassion is feeling with others. When we encounter the other, curiosity must overrule condemnation. We must do the hard work of disengaging from our own perspective, stepping outside of ourselves and making room for the other in our heart and mind. I recall a client who had to miss a session because of the death of his mother. When he returned the following week, my first words were, I'm sorry to hear about your mother. Now, my response was rooted in my sorrow over my mother's violent death. But he angrily responded, Why? She was a bitch. You see, I had failed to disengage from my own experience of mother death in order to be open to his experience. Again, this spiritual practice rooted in being radically present to the moment. How much of our lives are spent ruminating over past experience, often leading into depression. As we condemn ourselves for past choices, or we create a gloomy bitterness over what life has handed us. We can lose ourselves through imagining future scenarios that most often lead to anxiety. 
To find ourself, we must lose ourself. We accomplish this by so fully focusing on the person or task at hand that ego slips away, and we experience the enlivening energy surrounding us. As Richard Rohr points out, God comes to us as our life. Or as Jung asserts, bidden or not bidden, God is present. There are not God moments. God is present in all moments. Karen Armstrong writes that God is a psychic fact of immediate experience. Otherwise, there would never have been any talk of God. God present in our present, our past, our future, but are we present? Are we in our heads tuning into that incessant chatter, that never-ending river of rubbish? How many of us think we are that deadening detritus bouncing us from feeling to idea to self-criticism to worry to thought to fear? If we are to be spiritually healthy, we must submit to reality, submit to what is, the present, rather than what we want or wish it to be from our ego's distorted perspective. Isn't it interesting that the root meaning of the word contentment is what is? Sounds a little crazy if I think about the last year or so when both of my legs were constantly numb or when I stood for more than a few minutes, I would become frozen and in danger of falling. And then surgery, and then the walker and the cane, and then those first unencumbered steps. And now, twice a week, physical therapy to improve strength and balance. The challenge of staying present. The challenge of allowing God's presence. Traditionally, though, Christianity has split reality into the good and the bad, Jesus or Satan, if you will. Mahana Maharshi, the Indian mystic, suggests that Christianity is really a kind of funny religion. What we like, we call God, and what we don't like, we call the devil. Yet, Job declares, for God wounds, but he binds up. He strikes, but his hands heal. In Psalm 31, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. We tend to disown God when we suffer, but then sneak God back on board for healing. This process leads to psychological splitting, as in the client who had cheated on his wife. His take was, this is just not who I am. I responded, well, who was it if it wasn't you? Well, he chalked it up to Satan, thereby disavowing his responsibility and sense of agency, a refusal to claim his shadow. To live a spiritually healthy life means to live with ambiguity, living into the many shades of gray. For ultimately, God is mystery, and we spend a lifetime discerning the mystery of our lives. In this ambiguity, there is freedom. When we live into spiritual freedom, we come to realize that in any given situation, we must have at least two choices. Otherwise, we live with one demand— 
rigid shoulds, oughts, musts, and have-tos. Such a perspective leads to fundamentalism and Christian nationalism, an attempt to control behavior through one-way legalistic lenses. Without spiritual freedom, we are trapped by an imagined judging God, evaluating our every move, somewhat like Santa Claus seeing if we're naughty or nice. This is ego religion, using God to shore up our shaky little egos. One time when I was in therapy, I was processing some traumatic experiences, and my therapist asked me to complete the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. We could say this inventory reveals where we are seriously broken. In the interpretation session that followed, the therapist remarked, you should be much more screwed up than you are. You better think about what you've been saved for. Ah, an experience of grace, undeserved favor, a gift given, no strings attached, unearned care and love, a break from the brokenness. The experience of grace is a defeat for the ego because the ego can make no claim for the gift. The ego shrinks when grace abounds. There's a line that follows, there is a crack in everything. There's a crack in everything, but that's how the light gets in. This crack in everything is illuminated by the symbol that towers over Western Christianity. The image of the suffering God-man nailed to the cross, crying out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Western Christianity has approached the experience of suffering through intellectual exercises. In the face of suffering, the argument goes like this. If God is good, he must not be all-powerful. If God is all-powerful, then he must not be all-good. But don't these questions miss the point? This suffering God-man, this symbol of eternal suffering, declares the truth that we wish to evade. We all suffer. The entire creation suffers. This is the way of the world. No one escapes. Look at your own life. Look all around you. The suffering is overwhelming. Perhaps we must recognize that to one degree or another we are all traumatized. So the dominant spiritual question might be this. What do we do with our suffering? Jung speaks of neurotic suffering and authentic suffering. Neurotic suffering hurts like hell. We don't like it. But our process is such that we always end up coming back to the same old place. Authentic suffering hurts like hell. We don't like it. But our process is such that we remain true to our own suffering, and we emerge on the other side having been changed or transformed. This happens when we allow suffering to have its way with us, right down to our toes. And this is how the light gets in. Isn't this what the image of resurrected Jesus tells us? He rises and has obtained a new body. He has been changed, transformed. 
His disciples do not recognize him. He appears and disappears, and yet he still carries the scars of the wounds in his hands and feet. These are holy wounds and holy scars. Our wounds and scars, holy indeed. Wounds and scars burning with light. So rather than intellectual discourse about the meaning of the cross, we live into our own experience of our own cross. We know experientially the way of the cross, and that changes everything. When we accept reality that the cross reveals and recall that Paul declares we preach Christ crucified, then we understand why the word happiness does not appear in the New Testament. Despite our obsession with chasing happiness, happiness is not the point. The point is allowing ourselves to be transformed by our suffering, to let the light shine through the suffering so that we can be people of the light to others. One more thought. Carl Jung spoke of our God image rather than quote-unquote God. He was trying to show that each of us carries our own particular image of God, formed by our own countless experiences. If we are spiritually mature, then our God image changes over time. This is a hard truth because this experience asks us to go through times when our understanding and knowledge of God vanishes and leaves us with nothing but the absence of God. It seems to be a necessary emptiness if our God image is to broaden and deepen. One God image must die if we are to come into a fuller experience of the living God. It's no picnic, but it has nothing to do with our lack of faith or our losing our way. It's all part of moving deeper into the divine reality and becoming more human. Well, that's about it for this podcast. Next time, I will continue our reflection on healthy spirituality. Until then, be well. Be well.